Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Kareem. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her majestic and magisterial new book, The Occupied Planet, Militarism and Care in Kashmir, Saiba Verma disrupts and upsets the care violence binary by examining and vividly describing the violent state and non-state regimes and machineries of militarized care in Indian occupied Kashmir. Among the central arguments of this book is that while the site of the clinic meant to cure and care for psychological ailment and trauma is often presented as distinct from the militarized violence of the Indian state in Kashmir Medicine and militarism are in fact intimately and ineluctably bound. Verma develops her argument over the course of a book that combines ethnographic intimacy and brilliance with piercing attention to the brutality and irresolvable contradictions, inconsistencies and fissures haunting state projects of domesticating populations through militarized care. Written with analytical clarity and lyrical panache, the occupied clinic will leave the reader jolted, provoked, enraged, but also intellectually enriched and deeply inspired. This will also make a terrific book to teach in various courses on settler colonialism, anthropology, South Asia, and religious studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Saiba Burma. Uh, hello, Saiba. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, to discuss this phenomenal uh, new book, uh, The Occupied Clinic. Really look forward to this conversation. Uh, and of course, you're joining uh, the New Books and Islamic Studies uh, channel. Uh, many of our uh, listeners will be very interested in the, in the work that you've uh, uh, done here. Uh, we have a tradition on the New Books uh, Network, Saiba, that our first question is uh, biographical. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners uh, about. Uh, how you became a scholar, and then how you got to uh, write this particular book. Sure. Um, thanks so much, Shirley, for inviting me and uh, for hosting the podcast. Um, it's been great to listen to, you know, uh, to just learn about what's happening in the field. Uh, so thank you for all this amazing work that, that you all have been doing. Um, so just biographically, I guess, um, you know, something that drew me to anthropology was um, just growing up my my father was a diplomat an Indian diplomat and we you know traveled around moved every four years to a different country and so I think I just grew up with this feeling of um, cultural dislocation or not really belonging and sort of thinking about those questions of what does it mean to belong to a place Um, and you know what does it mean to have this kind of nomadic identity. And when I arrived at college, I, you know, started taking anthropology courses and 
it was then that I realized, you know, reading all this amazing kind of feminist ethnography, realized that, oh, there's actually a language for talking about these kinds of experiences and that I'm not alone um, in in going through that. So uh, that was, I think, a really formative experience for me. Um, and I was also always really drawn to literature um, as a student. And, you know, still I draw a lot from fiction and poetry and these other kinds of literary um, works and try to sort of infuse them into my my work as an anthropologist. Sometimes I think academics, we forget that we're writers, <laughs> you know, first and foremost, that's like our sort of primary way of communicating with the world. Um, so I would say that, you know, those are those are some of the influences that I, I try to bring to my work. Uh, terrific. Uh, as a beginning uh, question, Saab, I was wondering if we can talk a bit about sort of the larger um, conceptual argument that you make throughout the book and you lay out in the, in the introduction, uh, which is, as I read it, is sort of a, um, an attempt to really critique and um, uh, upset this kind of a binary between violence and care. And you sort of introduce this idea of uh, militarized care uh, throughout the book. So I was wondering as a way to sort of uh, describe the lay of the land, the lay of the conceptual land for the listeners, if you could speak a bit about this particular larger argument about uh, disrupting the care violence binary. And maybe through that, you can perhaps introduce a bit to our listeners the uh, idea of the occupied clinic and the setting of Kashmir on which the book is centered. So sort of the conceptual intervention in the larger setting to just introduce the listeners to to what you do in this book. Sure. Um so, you know, looking at the sort of history of Kashmir, I think it's it's very obvious um, that, you know, Kashmir has been a place that has been characterized, unlike other borderlands, it's a place that's really characterized by a kind of overinvestment, uh, both a kind of affective overinvestment in terms of, you know, for centuries there's been writing on Kashmir that celebrates it as this kind of heaven on earth Um you know, more recently in the post-colonial period that translates into, uh, you know, Kashmir as this kind of honeymoon destination and all of these Bollywood films uh, that are set there, right, celebrating it as this kind of idyllic, romantic place, often without people, right? It's often an unpeopled um, kind of landscape. But this this kind of affective um, intensity that is always accompanied by also this sort of military overinvestment um, in in the region of, of Kashmir. Um, and, you know, that military overinvestment is often hidden. It's often disguised. Um, so that when you ask, you know, a kind of average Indian person about Kashmir, what they see is this, ter- you know, what Ananya Kabir, who is a scholar of Kashmir, des- describes as a territory of desire. But they often don't see the kind of economic overinvestments and the military overinvestments that have uh, been so central to the kind of Indian rule over Kashmir and in producing these structures of dependency um, that in fact, you know, uh, force Kashmir to remain a part of India. And um, so on one level, I was sort of thinking about violence and care as intertwined um, aspects of colonial rule, which of course is not new, right? And it's not particular to um, Indian rule. We see the ways in which all kinds of other colonial projects also use humanitarian logics, um, right, to justify their rules. So you can think about like the US occupation of Afghanistan, for example, being justified by saving 
Afghani women, right, from um, the Taliban or something like that. Um, so I, I saw it sort of operating on on that level. I would say that's the sort of most, the largest kind of conceptual level. Um, but violence and care well, are also connected at a different level, which is at the level of actual governance. Um, so recently, you know, in the last decade or so, the Indian state has um, very, I think, in a very concerted way, turned towards narratives of care, of restraint, um, that are part of its sort of counterinsurgency campaigns, right? So realizing that, okay, this kind of brutal military force is not has not won us any uh, fans in Kashmir, and so we need to switch gears, and we need to do this sort of winning hearts and minds projects. So I was also interested in the ways in which biomedical, um, psychotherapeutic, these sort of techniques were being folded into counterinsurgency campaigns, um, and how the Indian state was mobilizing things like medicine, psychiatry, and psychology um, to actually, again, produce a dependency um, on itself and to create legitimacy uh, of Indian rule. Um, And then I guess the third level of the way that violence and care are imbricated is really like what you talked about at the level of the clinic, at the level of everyday life and everyday practice. And here I wanted to really sort of draw attention to the ways the much more indirect, much more subtle, much more invisible ways that militarism or violence would sort of seep into people's everyday lives, um, into their dreams, into their psychic lives, but also into things like doctor-patient interactions, right? Where, for example, these histories of counterinsurgency, of producing um, collaborators, producing informers, what is it actually tears apart the social fabric so that people don't trust each other, right? That is what it's designed to do is fragment um, social life. And so you would see that in the clinic where doctors and patients would both have this kind of sense of mutual um, mistrust to each other. And, you know, that that level of more kind of subtle um, effects or the subtle intertwining of violence and care was something that I felt like ethnography was really able to capture, whereas maybe other other kind of forms of documentation, you know, might not have. Thank you. Um, so as a way to talk about the first chapter, actually, before I talk about the first chapter, um, uh, I think it would be useful for the listeners to learn a bit about your uh, sort of ethnographic layout, uh, uh, what kinds of sites uh, were you uh, sort of interested in, uh, and the kind of geography and the and sort of the specificity of the sites, etc. And in addition to that, perhaps you could also speak a bit about uh, the, the first chapter and sort of the key category that... Uh, anchors it that of uh, this idea of uh, kamzori or uh, you know uh, weakness lethargy etc i was really struck at one moment in the in the chapter uh, for the listeners uh, this was page uh, 45 uh, uh, at least on my uh, uh, google play copy i'm not sure the physical copy of what it is but you said kamzori is historically resilient and I, I thought that really nicely captured what you were trying to do in the chapter to think a bit about how this idea of weakness, etc., actually becomes a form of power. Uh, that happens throughout in many chapters. I, I noticed a category that you might expect to work in certain ways completely works in a different kind of way. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, this idea of kamzori, what it signifies, uh, how it serves as more than just cultural signifiers, as you also put it in the in the chapter, 
uh, in addition to perhaps introducing our listeners a bit to the, the the specific sites in which you in which you operated as part of ethnography sure yeah um so i did you know um my sort of sites of field work you know were a pretty i would say conventional kind of medical anthropology project where um i was located mostly in clinical settings so um i worked in the sort of government psychiatric hospital which was the only kind of public psychiatric hospital in in the valley um so you know serving 6 million people also um and then i also worked in a police run um substance abuse clinic um which was kind of located in the heart of the police headquarters and it was part of this sort of counterinsurgency campaign uh by the jammu and kashmir police um and then i also worked with several both local and international humanitarian organizations so doctors without borders action aid as well as um some more local organizations who were trying to supplement um the state you know the public mental health infrastructure by providing counseling psychotherapy sort of non pharmaceutical um interventions you know and were able to like give much more sort of um like you know spend a lot more time with each patient be a lot more uh you know sensitive in that sense um with patients so those were some of the the settings that i worked in but um as i described in the introduction you know qu- very quickly i found that this space i had sort of imagined right the clinic as being a somewhat like a uh, bound bounded space <laughs> um it it sort of collapsed you know i realized that like every time i was trying to access things that were happening inside the clinic that i had to sort of pay attention to what was happening outside of the clinic and there were all of these ways in which what was happening outside of the clinic actually really impinged on and affected what was happening inside the clinic so you know just to give an example if there was a curfew outs- outside happening outside right the clinic could not there was no way that it could function normally um the flow of doctors was disrupted people were too scared to travel to the clinic the flow of medicines w- were disrupted the flow of patients were disrupted people couldn't come regularly for their checkups um, or to receive their medications so there were all of these ways in which you know i couldn't sort of carve out the clinic as a separate space in the way that you know i might have sort of wanted to um and i had to kind of attend to the ways in which the clinic was both extending outwards but also how the outside was um impinging on it as well um so that was kind of the the setting of of the field work and um i tried to capture that in the introduction which really begins with me starting out in the clinic it describes a kind of regular day at, in the op- in the outpatient department uh but it ends with me kind of leaving the clinic and traveling back to my guest house and moving through the city and all of the kind of military infrastructures that i encounter moving through the city and that was a way of of sort of demonstrating that the clinic is actually contiguous with those other forms of of militarism and violence as much as people are trying to shore it up you know as a kind of separate or standalone space um i think your comments about kamzori are really really sharp um and really astute actually um you know one of the things i was trying to show with this idea of kamzori which is of course like a feeling of debility you know chronic fatigue um 
but it's also not just physical it can be moral it can be spiritual um it can be relational it can be social um and you know people spoke about kamzori in all of these different registers speaking about how for example kashmiris had become collectively kamzor because of you know centuries of occupation and colonialism which had forced them to become collaborators which had you know forced them to make all of these kind of impossible compromises um with the state in order to survive um so there was that kind of collective register but as well as a moral register as well as a sense that just the body was um not the same right that like people were unable to recover from whatever they had experienced and i was really interested in you know something i noticed in the clinic which was that even though people other kind of symptoms seemed to dissipate so for example if someone was coming in with depression you know the typical depression symptoms would dissipate but they would insist that they were still kamzor <laughs> you know the doctors would say like no no you're fine like you know get out like you're done with your treatment and this they'd insist that no we are still kamzor i'm still kamzor i need something for you know give me something for this and that was really interesting to me was why are people kind of insisting on kamzori why are they insisting on holding on to this pain you know what are they what are they trying to say with it what are they because it wasn't like they gained anything by being kamzor they were usually treated pretty badly pretty you know pretty dismissively by psychiatrists so it wasn't as if they were getting some extra attention or care um and that's when i really started investigating kamzori more as a kind of historical you know as you sort of talked about it as a as a kind of historical wound and more specifically to think about it as a kind of wound of colonialism both a physical as well well as a psychic wound um and to say that look the that what happens in the body matters right and it matters because uh like the body as a material thing cannot be separated from the body as a kind of moral thing um and so people were sort of making a claim on what well-being and what health looks like by kind of insisting that they were kamzor um because of course they were trying to say like look it is impossible to be healthy in a state of occupation right what does it even mean to be well um in a state of occupation so there was a sense that to be kam- kashmiri was to be kamzor in a sense um which i just thought was uh, you know a really fascinating kind of way to think about symptomatology um and to think about pain as not necessarily something that we want to fix or something we want to get rid of but as actually making a a really powerful claim on on history right using using the body i think as a as a as a way of bearing witness to history terrific the next chapter the key category uh, which i believe is also connected uh, to the title is uh, disturbance and there of course you're talking about the idea of kashmir as a disturbed space or the idea of the temporal disturbance how it uh, impacts doctor patient relations etc Um, I mean, the argument that really struck me in this chapter was what you're really trying to show is that, as much as the clinic is um, presented as a space which is opposed to or separate from militarism, in fact, the clinic operates very much parallel or contiguous to militarism, and the two are actually quite intimately bound. And and you show that through this category of uh, uh, disturbance. And again, again, one key thread in this chapter as well was how disturbance, in fact. 
disrupts militarism uh, in its own ways. Uh, I was wondering, I mean, each, each chapter has so many things happening, so I'll, I'll just ask you about a couple of threads that perhaps you can then expand on. One thing that I found really interesting in this chapter that you could perhaps speak about is how this idea of disturbance um, impacted doctor-patient relations uh, and ways in which the doctor was, uh, were seen as sort of representatives of uh, the state, etc. But uh, I'll have you speak more about that that aspect. And this this larger argument that you make about the clinic and militarism sort of operating um, together uh, through this idea of disturbance. Um, I hope I'm sort of being uh, somewhat articulate about what my question is there. I think so. Um, if not, if I don't answer it correctly, you can totally jump in. Um, so I guess one thing I should say as well is that um, each chapter of the book is sort of organized around one kind of practice or one technology or one um, shared language, a kind of shared language that I've found between militarism and care. Um, so the, you know, the first chapter is is called Siege. Um, and I'm thinking about the ways in which Siege as a kind of military technology has been used in Kashmir, but also uh, Kamzori, right, as a as a way of thinking about what being besieged over centuries does to people and to people's bodies and how they are theorizing that. Um, and this chapter, uh, which is called A Disturbed Area, does a similar move with disturbance, which, of course, we think about disturbance both as a kind of psychiatric category, right, like a mental disturbance, but also as a legal and political category. So in India, um, certain states are declared. There's a legal instrument called the Disturbed Areas Act that has been you know, evoked in places like Kashmir and has been in place since um, 1990. And so um, in each of the chapters, I'm trying to sort of develop the nuances of these terms, this kind of shared language that I found between militarism and, and medicine um, or psychiatry. So that's just the kind of context. Um, to your question, so one thing, yeah, so disturbance, basically, the way people were talking about it was that they said that, um, you know, that basically these emergency laws, including, for example, the Disturbed Areas Act, but also other emergency laws like the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, etc., um, that what they had done was they had created a kind of culture of, of impunity, of legal impunity, right? So um, soldiers, for example, Indian soldiers are protected from prosecution under these emergency laws, even though they have committed, you know, mass human rights violations, like rape, torture, um, all of these things have been systematically used um, against, you know, people in Kashmir. Um, And uh, this kind of uh, culture of impunity, what they argued was that it was no longer just the state that had behaved, was behaving, you know, through the structure of impunity, but it had sort of seeped into everyday life. And now everybody was behaving with impunity, um, including both doctors and patients. Um, so I think what people were trying to just say here, right, was that occupation had been so profoundly disrupted to the social order. Um, that all kinds of forms of of corruption, wrongdoing, uh, malfeasance had seeped in, and people could get away with no no matter you know with anything. Um, and you can imagine how detrimental this is to spaces of care or spaces of medicine, 
which are so deeply dependent on a relationship of trust between doctors and patients, right? Um, so we had kind of, there was a moment in which doctors were now extremely fearful of patients uh, because they argued that patients had become rebellious, right, under this kind of logic of let's, you know, we can call it perhaps social impunity or something like that, where there was no, um, there were no ramifications for your actions. There were no consequences. You could get away with anything, right? Um, so it began with sort of gun-toting rebels walking around the streets with impunity and the state acting with impunity. But now it was patients and doctors behaving uh, with impunity. So this was really, um, this had really eroded, I think, the sense of trust um, in the clinical encounter and had made those interactions a lot more fraught, emotionally fraught, politically fraught. People were very suspicious of what kinds of medicines they were being given Doctors were very afraid that if they, something went wrong in the treatment, that they would be physically harmed. All of these things that are actually, you know, really, really detrimental um, to the practice of medicine. So, um, you know, that that's kind of a, just a sense of how it affected doctor-patient relations. Um, in terms of the clinic and militarism operating together, yeah. So I think what, you know, what what you see here is not just that. Um, the clinic is sort of registering the effects of militarism, right? So it's not just, for example, that the clinic is treating like the wounds that are produced by violence um, or the wounds that are produced by militarism, but rather the clinic was producing its own forms of disturbance, that medicine was actually a, a place where uh, violence was being remade into something else. Um, there were new forms of harm, new forms of violence uh, that were being you know, perpetrated, like, for example, doctors prescribing the wrong kinds of drugs, right, or doctors over prescribing or under prescribing, that would lead to all kinds of other, you know, bodily problems, um, all kinds of other illnesses, you know, what in medical anthropology, we call iatrogenesis. Um, so that was just an example of the ways in which I realized that, you know, medicine wasn't just a kind of passively registering, violence, but it was actually producing all of these new forms of, of harm. In the, in the next uh, uh, chapter, you have this very fascinating discussion about the, um, the ECT or the electric uh, sort of shock uh, uh, therapy machine. Um, and uh, there uh, you sort of make the point of ways in which this, the ECT in this procedure and the machine and its perceptions uh, blur the boundaries between humanitarian and militarized spaces. Once again, this constant sort of a theme that we see throughout the book. And I think in this chapter, you also uh, sort of disrupt this uh, binary between the shock and, uh, uh, sorry, uh, torture and care about how this, this machine actually was very reminiscent of this, uh, the torture uh, uh, mechanisms and procedures of the Indian military and the Indian state in Kashmir. Um, so could you talk a bit about this machine and its perceptions and how you make this argument about ways in which it blurs the boundaries between or spaces of humanitarian and militarized uh, spaces? Sure. Um, so this is a really, um, <laughs> I think uh, for many people, this is like the hardest chapter to, to read. I don't know if it was for you as well, but I know um, mm. it's uh, it's like a tough it's a tough story um, in this chapter, but um, basically, you know, it was really striking to me that 
ECT um, or electroshock therapy, right, is one of the most like widely used kind of tools in in Indian psychiatry um, in the subcontinent, and that psychiatrists were really, you know, they were like defending it. Um, I mean, there was like very little zero space for critique because they just regarded it as one of the most effective, the cheapest, um, most readily available uh, forms of treatment for patients, especially when they didn't respond to um, other kinds of of therapy like pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, And they also saw ECT as this kind of really important technology um, in that it would help people get out of out of institutions, out of hospitals, right? And who doesn't want that, right? No, none of us, I think, want to be locked up in a psychiatric institution, especially, you know, in South Asia, we know the history of abuse in those institutions. And so um, they justify the use of ECT by saying, look, this is our way of getting patients back into the community. They can go back home with their families. Um, it was, it was, like an unequivocally sort of caring technology um, in their minds. And, you know, this is across the board the case with Indian psychiatrists because um, there has been a lot of debate around ECT, um, particularly, you know, the kind of ECT that I describe in the book, which is uh, what they call unmodified ECT, which is basically ECT that's given without anesthesia or without any kind of like numbing um, or sedatives. Um, People are conscious when they receive ECT. And um, this has been defined as actually torture by, you know, the UN, like Human Rights Commission, etc. Um, and even, even then, even unmodified ECT, psychiatrists were like still really defensive of it, arguing that, you know, I remember one quote from a doctor was that, you know, some ECT is better than no ECT i.e. that even if we're giving this treatment without following the proper protocols, they're not supposed to be giving it without um, anesthesia. But, you know, in desperate situations, this is what we have to do. And even then, it's better. It's better than no ECT. Um, And this was just really striking to me. Um, You know, um, the ways in which it was, it was sort of constituted as a technology of care, kind of in a very similar way to how torture is understood, right, through a kind of national security paradigm as being necessary for the well-being and the protection of the nation state. Yes, sometimes we have to use these forms of excessive violence, but really it's for the good, right? It's for the greater good. Um, and what I, you know, what I discovered was that um, that ECT, even though it was being de- done in the name of care of returning patients to the community quickly, that in fact it was really taking a huge toll on people who were receiving it as well as on their families. Um, Often people were being discharged too quickly. Um, Often ECT was having all of these subjective effects like memory loss, um, other kinds of impairments that weren't really being registered. Like they're not really registered in the kind of in a biomedical sort of quantitative or statistical you know, analysis of ECT. And so they they weren't really taken seriously as part of the kind of subjective experience of, you know, of receiving shock therapy really while you're, while you're conscious. Um, And so that was something I wanted to kind of track in, in this chapter was how these 
these treatments, these interventions are justified as forms of care. But, you know, what are their long-term effects? Like, what do people, people who are actually going through them, you know, they they are often kind of left, like, um, basically just taking care of themselves, right? The institution washes its hands and says, look, we took care of you, we've done our job. Um, and so there's a sense of abandonment at the, you know, that I describe at the end of the chapter. Um which, you know, there is no space for that kind of experience um, when we construct all of these technologies simply as, as beneficial, simply as, as forms of care. So, yeah, that was, a hard, mm-hmm. that was a hard chapter for me. I want to use the, the, uh, the interlude that you have, um, 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 uh, the brief interlude, as a, as a way to ask you two questions. Uh, one is uh, that interlude, of course, uh, t- is uh, uh, titled Disappearances. Uh, and in that, you really get a good sense of the kind of, um, uh, really, the, the, the difficult terrain in which this ethnography is being conducted. We sort of, as readers, see some of your own positionality as an Indian subject uh, operating in this terrain. At one point, I, I don't have the page in front of me, but you talk about the telephone as being our umbilical cord and the Facebook being the arteries through which you actually got some information and you talked about ways in which you were being given sort of the the, the names of the those who had been killed to have at least some kind of a uh, tabulation of uh, uh, you know non-state uh, records of, of the, the people being killed etc. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit this sort of an unformulated question but if you could speak a bit about the, the 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 kind of sensibility of the ethnography uh, I, I want to use that chapter as a way for you to sort of talk a bit about I guess your own positionality although I don't want to belabor too much on that but I'm sure that's a question that you'll get asked quite a bit in terms of this project but I just want to get a good a sense uh, for our listeners uh, uh, through that interlude about the the kind of dynamics of the ethnography in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, the kind of uh, space and time that, that this ethnography was conducted and in terms of this emergency situation at all times and, and the way in which the ordinary and extraordinary were sort of coalescing. Um, uh, affectively, that interlude is a very powerful moment in the book. So I'm just trying to see if you might be able to say a bit about that to our listeners, um, uh, about the experience of the ethnography. And the second question I want to ask is about the, the form of the book. Uh, it has this interlude, then you have uh, copious sort of uh, poetry, then you have these, uh, uh, I guess, uh, these uh, twigs uh, every now and then. Uh, um, if you could say a bit about it, because that really does connect nicely with the kind of um, the kind of uh, unevenness of the of the temporality of the ethnography, right? So, in some ways, the form of the writing seemed to be quite deliberate and nicely connected to the larger argument that you were making. So, two slightly different kinds of questions, but I was wondering if you could speak to those two things. Yeah, sure. So, um, the interlude actually. So. Um, it takes place during the the protests of 2010, where there was a kind of mass uprising um, in during the summer after it was, you know, revealed that three uh, Kashmiri civilians had been killed and their bodies had been basically passed off as, you know, Pakistani terrorists. I mean, even their clothing had been changed. They had been uh, given like fake ID cards, all of these things, um, you know, because these are ways that, Indian army officials can sort of receive bonuses and promotions and rewards, right? And just kind of keep the sort of, keep the machinery of the Indian national security apparatus kind of humming. Um, 
And so when it was discovered that these three, you know, innocent people had been had been killed and their body, bodies had been sort of transformed in this way, it was kind of a rare confirmation of something that people in Kashmir know happens all the time, right? It's, these are known as kind of fake encounter killings um, in South Asia. And so the whole region erupted in protests for months, like two, three months. Um, and this happened like right in the middle of my field work. I had been in the field for about nine months at this point. And everything ground to an absolute halt. You know, I could no longer, um, could barely leave my house, let alone travel across the city to the clinic where I was working. Um, it basically completely cast uh, field work itself into question and research itself into question because, you know, I, I think I described in the book, I started thinking like, what is the point of, you know, doing research on something like trauma when there are people dying, right? It was like every day there were, the body counts would sort of increase. And by the end of the protest, you know, more than 120 civilians had been killed. Um, so I sort of went through an existential crisis as well. I think any researcher in that situation would, where I, you know, deeply questioned what I was doing and, you know, like what was my role in all of this? Um, what was what was keeping me there? And was I any use at all to anybody? You know, all of those questions. Um, and so it was this, this kind of huge interruption um, in the project, but it was also... I think just really, really necessary for me to go through that psychologically um, because, you know, being an outsider to Kashmir, I think part of it was I thought that I could, you know, it was a, I, I approached it initially as something I would study, right, as um, something I, I would observe. And of course, I would be a part of the scene. Um, it's not that I believe in like objectivity or anything, but, you know, it was something that was external to me in some ways. Um, and going through this experience of curfew and siege in 2010 um, completely sort of upset that that relationship. And I realized that I was in it now. You know, I was now a product of militarism and violence myself. Um, and that it wasn't just the clinic that was disrupted or it wasn't these other kinds of things of everyday life that were disrupted. But it was research itself that was disrupted. And that the existential stakes of doing research became sort of abundantly clear to me, you know, and I think places, working in places like this, places of conflict or, or occupation, it makes those those questions much clearer. But I definitely don't think that these questions should be restricted, you know, just to those of us who work in these spaces. I mean, now with COVID, we're seeing everyone is asking themselves these questions, right, about what is my research for? And does it matter? And what, right, what's motivating me to do this? Which I think are all really um, important questions that we should be asking. And that was um, it. Was those kinds of questions, um, which I think are very much part of the research process, but are often black box. They are often hidden because we feel like we have to perform some kind of academic truth or authority or you know, whatever it is, some kind of positivist hangover uh, that we might have. Um, and we hide those things. You know, we hide the reality of what this work is and what it takes from us and the ways it challenges us. And um, I wanted to make sure that those were part of the book 
you know, that, 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 that story was also being told in the book. So for me, the book is very much also a story of my own fieldwork journey, um, of my own vulnerabilities as a researcher, the moments where I fail or I'm, you know, I get things wrong, people challenge me. Um, and also I wanted to, you know, in that spirit, I also wanted to provincialize academic knowledge as well um, as being a very limited way of accessing these kinds of truths and this kind of multi-layered reality. And so that's why I use poetry. That's why I use art. Um, I, this is why I try to write in a way that is, um, you know, I try to maintain both a lyricism, but also a readability throughout um, the book because I wanted people to experience it on that affective register as well. Mm. Terrific. Wonderful. Um, the next uh, chapter, you introduce uh, another category and you sort of move away from the site of the clinic per se and uh, to talk about NGOs and uh, uh, psychosocial care. Um, uh, and here, the, the very interesting argument that you made was how these NGOs and their provision of uh, the psychosocial care was really based on a certain kind of empiricism where care had to be evaluated and measured and, you know, the, this kind of assessment that uh, uh, that has become sort of the global buzzword in terms of evaluating how things are working out. Um, but the thing that I found really exci- interesting and exciting about this chapter was ways in which um, uh, those who were receiving it, the sort of population, uh, were always comparing it to uh, sort of uh, quote-unquote conventional medicine and were a bit suspicious of this kind of psychosocial care and uh, but that was taken as a uh, as a symptom of their superstition or their backwardness, etc. So, could you speak a bit about this fissure between how it was received by uh, the Kashmiri population and then how that 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 perception was then framed uh, by these NGOs and their empiricist schemes, etc. If you could talk a bit about that fissure that you so nicely capture in this chapter on psychosocial care. Sure. Um, so in this chapter, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of focusing on um, both local as well as international um, organizations that are trying to basically, you know, bring, um, I would say, a more kind of therapeutic touch. Um, you know, they're trying to do counseling, they're trying to do psychotherapy, um, group therapy, these kinds of uh, practices. Um, you know, just because the sort of public health care is so inadequate. Um, and, you know, in many cases, I think they are really ethical actors. They're really well-meaning, really well-intentioned. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to be one of those anthropologists that comes in and is just like trashing the work of NGOs and humanitarian organizations. I feel like there's a lot of that work already out there. And I didn't think that that really captured um the complexity of what people were trying to do. Um, and, you know, one of the things I also tried to talk about in this chapter is that it wasn't just the people who were receiving care who were the ones in need, but it was, you know, the people who were doing the the interventions um, who were in need, which is an argument that also Lisa Malki makes in her wonderful book, The Need to Help, um, where, you know, it was these psychosocial workers who were dependent on this this work, you know, in a in a place where the economy is basically either you have a public sector job or you are like just extremely in a precarious situation. Um, and so all of them were desperate to kind of keep these projects going, you know, and they had to strike this really delicate balance between 
how do we show that we are succeeding, right, in our goal of helping the most vulnerable people um, in Kashmir, you know, with with their kind of psychological problems. But at the same time, how do we show that there's still work to be done so that the project can continue, so that we can continue to, to live and get paid? Um, and I wanted to capture that delicate, you know, balance that they um, are trying to strike. And their work is made even more complex by uh, what you talked about, um, Sher Ali, which is that people were generally not familiar with counseling or psychotherapy, right? Um, that this is a very new kind of intervention. And so it wasn't legible um, to a lot of people. They were familiar with either the kind of the model of um, like spiritual healing, right? Going to a peer, for example, and then you receive something in exchange for going there. Or if you go to a doctor, you receive something, you receive a prescription, you receive medicine. But in counseling, you don't receive anything tangible. Um, And this was a really hard thing. It didn't really fit into the other sort of, into the broader ecology of care um, that people were in. And so I really tried um, in this chapter, again, not to, you know, neither to sort of condemn the, the humanitarian workers, because I do think a lot of them are doing really important work and really trying. Um, and neither did I want to overstate the importance of these psychosocial models. I didn't really think that they were transforming, you know, people's subjectivities in the way that sometimes they were hoping to do, just because they were such a minimal kind of form of care within this much broader, you know, landscape. If we think about all of the other techniques of healing that people drew upon you know psychosocial care was such a tiny tiny part of it um so it's also important for me not to overstate you know the significance uh, of these projects the the next chapter of course the the the, the context is the 2014 uh, uh, floods and uh, the humanitarian efforts of the indian state and it's uh, sort of uh, the, the the kind of shortcomings of those efforts and uh, and it's really about this whole question of uh, trying to seek gratitude from the Kashmiri population for this kind of humanitarian uh, sort of support being given, which always was not uh, completely adequate. And this kind of uh, tension between uh, being seen as uh, taking the support not, uh, to not be seen as uh, equacing to the sovereignty of the state. Um, uh, it's a really fascinating chapter. Uh, the thing in that chapter that really struck me, and, and I actually want to ask you about something on which you end the chapter, you sort of build this whole argument and, and on that note you end, which is this category of hospitality and you show ways in which this idea of uh, hospitality and its sort of cognates, mehman, nawazi, etc., how it works in the everyday. And, and you make this argument which uh, perhaps connects back to the very first chapter in which you make the argument that hospitality was something that was political and actually uh, indexed a, a sort of an alternate horizon of the political um, and uh, uh, it was the opposite of Kamzori. In fact, at one point you'd say that it, it, it made possible a certain kind of a sovereign cosmopolitan future uh, for for Kashmiris. Uh, could you explain a bit this very fascinating argument about hospitality and politics and hospitality as a, as a sort of a, a way in which to forge alternate political horizons uh, which are uh, operate on a different logic of sovereignty and cosmopolitanism than the current sort of Indian occupation of Kashmir? Yeah, sure. So, um, so um, I'm thinking about hospitality in the in this last chapter, um, especially in relation to two crises um, in Kashmir. So, the 2014 
there were these massive floods, which are, you know, the worst disaster to hit the region in 50 years. Um, and then in 2016, you had a mass uprising after the death of Burhan Wani. And then, um, you know, the Indian military began using uh, what they call non-lethal weapons, but really like shotgun pellets um, on protesters and, you know, resulted in like sort of mass injuries, like more than 15,000 people were like severely injured uh, by these pellet pellet guns. Um, And so both of these moments of state abandonment, essentially, and state violence. um, And I was trying to sort of theorize how people, what people did in these moments, and the ways in which they connected uh, both these moments together, and uh, how they survived, really. And um, what I found, you know, people sort of coming back again and again too was precisely this idea of hospitality of um, self-help um, you know what in the U.S. we are now seeing is this kind of flourishing of mutual aid networks and you know this is very very resonant with I think the way people were talking about hospitality in uh, Kashmir and um, you know it had so many like dimensions to it like you you talked about it was grounded in a kind of Islamic ethics of saying that no actually we um as the giver we are actually in a relationship of of debt to the person receiving right that the person receiving is in a is in a kind of more powerful position than us that this relationship is mediated by god there was there was that discourse uh but there was also this really interesting kind of historicizing of hospitality where people were tracing it back to uh, Kashmir's place on the Silk Route and the ways in which traders would be, you know, from Iran or Tibet or wherever they were coming from would be welcomed into people's homes and fed and given tea. And, you know, this is how people kind of cultivated um, these practices of hospitality. Um, and then it was also this kind of political layer, as you pointed out as well, right, of hospitality being actually an enactment of of interdependence, a relationship of interdependence, a relationship of care, where people said, okay, so it's not these like traders coming to our doors anymore, but it's it's a fellow Kashmiri and we can enact hospitality towards each other as well. We can we can self-organize, we can take care of people's basic needs, which is exactly what they did both after the floods as well as um, you know, during the 2016 crisis, where the you know the hospitals were completely overwhelmed um, with injured patients, there was just no way uh, that they could do it, and so all of these people organized food and tea and ambulances and uh, money and you know just all of these basic uh, necessities. And I, I just thought it was um, a really powerful way of saying, you know, self determination is not just this kind of political horizon in the future, but it's also about a way of relating to each other. Um, It's about a way of showing that like we can, you know, take care of each other. And I think this is what people were, were doing. Um, It was, I think, a really important moment for people to understand that, you know, in the absence of the state, that there are all of these other forms of mutual care, mutual recognition, um, that are still flourishing, right? That still haven't been broken down or destroyed by these centuries of colonial rule and these decades of military occupation. 
Um, so that was a really beautiful thing to witness, even though it was, you know, a temporary kind of burst of activity as these things often are, but uh, it really stayed with me. So as a final uh, substantive question, uh, Saiba, I was wondering if I could have you uh, take a step back and uh, maybe reflect a bit on what you see as uh, sort of, uh, in addition to this larger conceptual arguments, etc., as the sort of intervention that you would want readers to take away from this book in terms of its contribution to anthropology or South Asian studies, uh, the study of Kashmir, etc., uh, sort of uh, sort of a larger sort of intervention and take-home point that you would really want readers to definitely uh, come out with uh, after having uh, read this book. <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um, I think, um, well, one thing I would want um, readers to take away from the book is um, basically, I think, something we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is um, that, you know, it's it's sort of about the politics of representation. Um, it's about a certain kind of writing, um, embracing a certain kind of uncertainty, um, you know, not seeing that as a, as a flaw or a limitation, but really using that to kind of tell a different kind of story. Um, you know, for me, the challenge with this book was how do I tell a story about the immensity of violence and the ways in which violence kind of permeates, you know, all aspects of people's lives in Kashmir without turning it into a sort of, you know, pornography of suffering, as, you know, Val Daniel once called it. Um, or, you know, for example, how do I tell that story without reproducing narratives of, let's say, torture, um, or sexual violence in my accounts, you know, because even though I heard plenty of those stories, oftentimes those stories were told not for the first time to me, you know, I was often the, the 10th or 20th person that people were, te- were narrating these same stories of violence to, often like with a really affectively neutral tone, you know, like they had like lost, basically, they, they were like numb, right? To the story and then they would tell me the story and then they would ask me okay what are you going to do with it now now that we've told you and I really had no response you know um what was I going to do with it nothing um I have you know no power to change their lives at all um and so I didn't want to tell uh, I didn't want to write a book that was doing that either that would hold me up as some kind of you know ethical witness um because that didn't feel true either um as I described to you, like it was a very murky um, experience, you know, as I think it is for a lot of people. Um, So I guess I would like, you know, people to sort of come away knowing that these are all choices that we make in our work um, and that those decisions can also be part of the story that you tell. You don't need to just produce this kind of sanitized version (laughs) Of, of what this work is, right? We can kind of uncover some of those more complex dynamics because I do think that's, it's it's a more honest, um, you know, it's a more honest story of what research really is um, and how we ourselves are undone by it. As we're coming to the end of our time, Saba, uh, could you share with our listeners a bit what you're thinking as the next uh, uh, project that you're going to be working on? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a bit hard to talk about next projects right now, right? Because I think everyone is uh, in a state of, yeah, like unknowing and suspension at this moment. Um, but something that this project opened up for me and I'm really um, interested in thinking further about our, our methods, you know, rethinking our kind of ethnographic methods and so have some collaborative work um with two colleagues where we're thinking about this idea of patchwork ethnography um, and thinking about really theorizing what it means to kind of, right, how do we actually manage life and field work? And what does it actually mean to kind of be honest about <laughs> the ways in which life impinges on field work and field work impinges on life? Um, so that's kind of one, one project is really trying to rethink what ethnographic methods can be um and then next time i go to kashmir i don't know when that will be hopefully next year inshallah i hope so um and i'm really interested in doing a project on gardens and gardening because these women who have these amazing kitchen gardens which sustain not only their families but also their communities and neighborhoods during uh times of strikes and curfews and so i would you know, really love to get into in the dirt with them and, you know, learn more about how they they sort of nourish life even when everything else has stopped. You know, everything else is on pause, but the gardens, they, they go on. The Occupied Clinic, Militarism and Care in Kashmir by Professor Saiba Verma, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Uh, thank you uh, so much, Saiba, for such a spellbinding book and for this really erudite conversation. I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate uh, this conversation and, of course, uh, really learn a lot from the book. So thank you so much for your time uh, to come on the New Books Network. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time as well to read and engage with it. So this was my conversation with Professor Saiba Verma about her hauntingly majestic uh, new book, The Occupied Clinic. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, take care, stay well, see you in 2021. And keep listening to new books in Islamic study.